You are listening to a Bible talk recorded at the 2011 Western Christadelphian Bible School at Manuka. This is the first class in John Launchbury's series on the topic entitled The Transformed Mind, recorded Monday, July 25th, 2011. The title of this first class is Sin and the Poverty of Law. Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be here. This is a series I've been working on for many years. People often ask, um, you know, how long have you been working on, on a particular topic? And in, in some sense, the answer is always, all my life. And, um, but this one, particularly the last five and, and also the last ten years, I've, I've been working on it. And it's only now just distilling. So I really appreciate the opportunity to share it with you um, here at Manuka. Um, Manuka, I always think of as my home Bible school. You guys know me. So, you know, I, I can say outrageous things as I'm sort of trying out ideas, and, and you'll just accept that, yeah, that's John, and, you know, it won't, won't have you think badly of me. So think of this set. This is the first time I've given these classes as um, something of an experiment. Um, you guys are guinea pigs. Uh, welcome to the laboratory. And um, I will, I'm sure, overstate things. I'll misexpress things. Um, uh, but um, as I say, you know me. You know, you know my heart. You know my spirit. Um, please, please listen accordingly. The issue that I want to address in these five classes is how does the process of salvation actually work in us? What goes on with the process of salvation? And I think the um, insight, um, certainly as I was, I was working on the series that, that led to my book, is that it's, it's not about transactions that take place, but it's about transformation. It's not about some, um, some contract that has happened, but it's about real change. It's about um, uh, transformation. And of course, the, the whole title about the transformed mind, um, you will recognize immediately. It's that verse we often quote um, in, um, in Romans, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We, we have to see the world differently from the way um, before, we, before we came to Christ. Today, what we're going to do is some dismantling. We're going to do some dismantling. Um, the title is, is a little grandiose, Sin and the Poverty of Law. And what we're going to actually address is the uselessness of rules. The uselessness, uselessness of rules as a mechanism to overcome sin. Now you might see that as a moment that I've just overstated something, as I warned you earlier. But let, let me stick with that. I'm going to argue from Scripture that rules... And a religion based on sets of rules is actually counterproductive to the salvation. I'd like to, you to have the following image in your mind, actually the following pair of images in your mind. In one of them, you have a vicious dog that is chained up. Okay, go near it and it savagely comes at you and then the chain holds it back. And in the other... You have a, a dog who has a warm and friendly spirit. You see, um, religion that is oriented around rules 
doesn't do anything about what goes on inside the dog. It just limits what the dog can do. It limits the damage the dog can do. It's the chain. You still have the viciousness inside. Whereas what we're actually called to is the transformation to change what we're like on the inside. I like the following phrase. Unless there's real change, it's all just paperwork. Unless there's real change, it's all just paperwork. So we're going to uh, explore this whole idea of um, the uselessness of rule as a mechanism to overcome sin. If we talk about and think about religion, what is someone's religion? Um, My religion is this, my religion is that. Um, I don't eat pork because of my religion. I do eat something because of my religion. I go to church on Sundays because of my religion. Because of my religion, I wear certain clothes or certain patterns of clothes at certain times, or I don't wear certain clothes at certain times because of my religion. Because of my religion, I I mix with some people. Because of my religion, I don't mix with others. Um, Because of my religion, I make sure I read my Bible every day. Because of my religion, I pray three times a day. Because of my religion, I pray before meals. None, None of these are bad or wrong. But it's important to realize that this is actually not the essence of what the religion that we're called to is about. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to spend quite a lot of time um, with Paul, one way or another. Um, But um, we'll we'll start here in in Colossians 2. They were really struggling with this question in the first century ecclesias. He says in verse 16, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival. Or, with re, or a new moon celebration. Or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat, drink, or with regard to a religious festival, I don't know, like Sunday morning? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In particular, what he was addressing at this time were the religious festivals associated with the keeping of the law of Moses, the particular manifestations of the law of Moses, which were an echo a shadow of the reality that was there in Christ. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All of those religious rules that they had, again, through their background in growing up through Judaism, why do you submit to these, he says? These are all, this is verse 22, these are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. 
And here's, I think, the key verse um, of this whole section. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. These outward regulations, these outward rules, they look very religious. The manifestation of your religion. Somebody looks at you and thinks, that person is very religious. But he says, these things, even when they're rigorous things, the, um, the uh, harsh treatment of the body, I wonder whether that's a, a reference to extensive fasting or, or something like that. These things that were based on rules and regulations, he says, they look, they look like they're really religious. And you look at someone and you think, man, I wish I was as religious as that person. But he says they're like the chain on the dog. They actually lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't get to the real problem that salvation is all about. So as I say, we're going to continue to explore this um, from a number of dimensions. When I was, when I was young... Um, I stressed over questions like, well, here's a specific one I used to stress over as a teenager. How far can you go with sex before marriage, before it's wrong? I mean, where's the line? You know, you can go this far and, and, and no further. And, you know, I struggled with that. What, where, where's the right teaching here to, to exactly understand what I was allowed to do and what I wasn't allowed to do? Or I hear people ask, is gambling a sin? What, what if it's just for quarters? Is it still a sin then if it's just for quarters? Or is it wrong not to dress up for Sunday meeting? Do, do you see the kinds of questions that, that we ask ourselves, either as young people or, or even as not so young people? We have all of these kinds of questions, which are important questions. We want to understand aspects about our, our connection with God, our connection with each other. And how, how do we go about answering these questions? Well, in my experience, we do the following. We look at various passages. We, we pull all the various passages that are relevant, um, where God has said one thing, and then in another circumstance, he said something uh, additional to that. In another situation, something additional. We weigh up all of these commands and instructions, and we try and sort of figure out what's the rule for this situation. And we do it because we genuinely think that this is what God is wanting us to do. And we, we have phrases like, we, we come to God... Um, the way he wants us to come to him, not the way we want to come to him, and things like that. At the risk of overstating things again, brothers and sisters, this is dangerous. I think this is a dangerous way to go about looking at our behavior. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. Where they took the law that was there in the law of Moses. And they were trying to work out exactly how far can you um, walk on a Sabbath day. 
And so they would look at examples, and they would end up saying, you can walk this far and no further. Exactly how much should you wash your hands before a meal? And they would identify what the right amount that you have to wash your hands at least this much before a meal. And, and they, I mean, we're, we're often down on the Pharisees. And I, I'd like us just to take a moment to lift them up, to, to recognize um, the, the deep spirit that was there in many of them. Um, they came as a community of, of people who were set apart that's how they viewed themselves. They hated the, um, the way that the, the religion had become a political thing in, in, their, um, in their nation uh, under the time between the, the gospel, uh, between the testaments. They hated the way that everything had become political, that the party of the um, Sadducees and, and the high priest was just this political appointee and whoever happened to be wealthy and, and all of these kinds of things going on. And they said, that's not how God wants us to, to do our religion. And, and we, we need to get back and actually commit our lives to following God. So, so their intent was, was wonderful. It was marvelous. And indeed, when you look at the, new, at, at the, um, the early church, Many of the early church who, who came aboard in, in those early days were from the Pharisees, where they recognized that there was something just remarkable about this man, Jesus Christ. They wanted to follow him. So, so even though Scripture and, and we will see failures in the Pharisees, let's not consider them to be a totally black people in terms of um, everything that they were doing was wrong. They were motivated by the right thing. They fell into a, a wrong way of thinking about the nature of righteousness. The reason this is relevant, brothers and sisters, I risk overstating something again, is that if you look in all of Scripture to find the community of people that are most like Christadelphians, it would be the Pharisees. And so we have to learn their lessons. We have to take the condemnation that Jesus offers to them and look at what parts of our lives we have to have different so that we don't fall into the same ultimate destructive uh, patterns that they fell into. Let's look at an example when Jesus actually came across them. This is in um, Matthew 12. I was reminded of... Mark saying, follow your notes, Mark. And I'm a little bit like that myself here. So this is just stepping back a little bit. Um, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is, in the, um, Jesus is hungry with, with his disciples. And they find themselves in the, um, the grain fields. And um, it says his disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. And, and this is on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. It may have been kind of like a genuine question, though Jesus seems to suggest it was um, much more of a condemnation, um, that they were giving a condemnation that, Oh, they're breaking the law, they're doing what was unlawful on the Sabbath. And what's Jesus' answer? 
If Jesus believed in the legal approach to righteousness, in the sets of rules and regulations, he might say something like, well, if you look back at Exodus when it was set up, there were these circumstances in which somebody was able to, as it were, violate the Sabbath, and in these other circumstances. He doesn't do that. He does something much more profound. If you noticed, he, he says, verse 3, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Jesus responds to them saying, your, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. As he says, David also broke the law of consecrated bread. Now, I've heard Christadelphian speakers try to argue that David wasn't actually breaking the law because he was in some sense king and priest as a forerunner of Christ who was king and priest. Jesus tells us that David was breaking the law. He said it was not lawful for him to do. That David broke the law by going in to eat the showbread. And Jesus is saying... Hasn't that actually had an impact on the way that you think about law? That David could go in and violate this law of God to do with the holy place of the tabernacle and yet still have the approval of God. Or verse 5, haven't you read in the law... On the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent. Do no work, says the Sabbath. And yet the priests on that day had to do work. There wasn't a special exception built into the the law of the Sabbath. And it's wrong thinking to go and try and find a legal loophole which allows the, um, the, the priest to do that. What Jesus is trying to do in this discussion is strike at the very way we think about law. The very intent that God had from it. It's not about breaking law. You broke the law. You're due for punishment. He says... um, If you'd known what these words mean... This is verse 7. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Hmm. In another place, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is... He's saying, when the law of the Sabbath was established, it was established to accomplish a purpose, to help in the salvation, to help in the support of a human being. Don't spend every day of your life fixated on on this world. Take a day where you just come away from it and you just completely focus on the things about God. That, that, That was the law of the Sabbath. And it wasn't about, if you break this, you will get punished. Now, now you might object to um, uh, some of the things in in the wilderness, but we could talk about those details uh, later. The point is, it's about 
stirring them on to, to be able to have that space, to have that time where they can truly connect with God, they can truly worship. Jesus recognized that the design of the law of the Sabbath was in order to promote spirituality in people. And that he and his disciples, taking grain in the grain field because they were hungry, was in no sense violating the intent of that law. The reason why God put that in place Even though they were technically in violation, they were not violating the intent of of what God had put it there. And I think that that's that's really important. There was a deeper purpose to the rules. And that deeper purpose is what the rule was supposed to be about. And where the rule ends up conflicting with its deeper purpose, then the rule goes. It's the purpose that God always cares about. And this is the point of this quotation here uh, from Hosea, where Jesus said, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Oh, the law required sacrifice, abundant sacrifice. And if you didn't bring that sacrifice, technically you were in violation of the law. But the sacrifice was there in order to accomplish a purpose. And accomplishing that purpose was about something like mercy. This this verse, Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is quoted by Jesus more than any other verse in the Old Testament. He quotes it directly twice. He alludes to it once. It's an important verse for him. I desire the intent of what the law is there for, not the actual regulations and rules of the law. I heard a while ago about um, a seminary that was um, teaching, teaching the people in the seminary the um, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan and having them sort of really explore it in, in detail. And um, what they did was they, they set up as it was part of the, um, in this course, what they would have is uh, the professor would set it up so that at the end of the course, the students had to give um, a detailed discourse on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there would be the professor there, and there would be some other professors who they don't normally interact with, and some peers as, as their judgment, as the panel who were assessing the, the, the story. So they would spend time preparing this, and then at a designated time, they would come and they would present their view of the Good Samaritan, what what they had learned and what they had researched and, and so on. What they didn't know was that for each of them, on the way to the presentation, the professor would have arranged for somebody in great need to be there on the road, on the pathway, And the person would walk past them. And actually the question was, are you more worried about getting to the time of the presentation and presenting everything that you have learned about the parable of the Good Samaritan or seeing this person who is in need and doing something about the person who is in need? And, of course, the professor made it really challenging and emphasized how vitally important it was that they were there on time and how they would fail the class if they weren't there on time and, and all of these kinds of things. It's very interesting, isn't it? 
It's, it's, it's sobering. I would have failed. I, I know that. And we do that to each other with our rules and regulations where it's more important to get to meeting on time than it is to find somebody and help them. And, you know, especially as a speaker, the idea of, as I'm on my way to an appointed, you know, when I'm supposed to speak, if, if there's somebody there who suddenly needs help, man, that is so hard to actually say, you know what, of course they will understand. Of course they will understand. Here's somebody who needs help. Something else will happen. And yet we, we have our own sets of rules and regulations that I think end up interfering with, um, uh, with, with a true exercise of our faith. Matthew 5 and verse 20. This is the, this is the thing that our Lord is telling us. For I tell you, Christadelphians, he doesn't actually say Christadelphians, but he tells his disciples, I tell you, disciples, those of you who want to be my disciples, Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If our righteousness is based on a manifestation of rules and regulations and our understanding about what you're supposed to do in this situation and what you're supposed to do in that situation, then that is only what the Pharisees had. And we haven't actually seen the kind of righteousness that allows us to step into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to emphasize this point even more. Matthew 23 this is a big deal for Jesus. Okay, let's not, let's not think that it's the sort of thing that just happens one occasion or another occasion. It is the fundamental conversation he has with the, with the Pharisees. He says it again and again and again in this way and that way and ten different ways. And here in Matthew 23... Um, we, this is the woe chapter. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. I think it's interesting when, when we read this to read it, um, first of all, maybe as a woe to you, as a sort of you know, shake them up with condemnation. But it's also interesting to read it with sadness, like he's weeping. I'm so desperately sorry for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites, because you're missing it all the time. I think it's fascinating to, to, to read it in, in both those voices. Look, look at verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold on the temple, he's bound by his oath. That's ridiculous, he says. How could you possibly make a distinction like that? It's the temple that made the gold sacred. I mean, even if you're doing this thing with oaths, which is a bad idea in the first place, as he says elsewhere, at least be consistent with it. Um, 
at the risk of being controversial, I'm, I'm going to give an example from um, many, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago in Scotland. Um, the sisters in, in a particular ecclesia um, over in Scotland had wondered, um, they had Sunday morning meeting and then at 6 o'clock they had an evening lecture. And they wondered um, whether they ought to wear head coverings for the evening lecture. It had been their practice, they wear head coverings for the evening lecture. And they were wondering, should we wear head coverings for the evening lecture? And so the ABs met together to discuss the matter. And they weighed up the pros and the cons and thought about the scripture. And in this particular case, they concluded that, no, it's, it's, um, it's not necessary for the sisters to, to wear head coverings for the Sunday evening lecture. Afterwards, the sisters got together, and they ended up saying, you know, we actually think that we should. And so they decided to wear head coverings. Now, just think about this for a minute. The traditional view of head coverings is that they are a sign of submission of authority from the woman to the man. And so what we have here is a situation where the sisters say, no, I am going to assert that you actually don't have authority over me by wearing this thing which says you have authority over me. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. And, and I, I don't mean to be hard on us as a community, but do you see how easy it is for us to fall into this? To look at the externalities and not actually think about what's going on inside of us. For the Pharisees, this is rules gone wild. It had lost all meaning. It had lost all purpose. Um, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Ah, I know about the law of tithing, and I've got some peppercorns here, so nine for me and one for God, and nine for me and one for God. And, and this is religion? When you have things like mercy and fairness and enduring faithfulness that go neglected. Because how do you measure that? See, we tend to, we tend to focus on the things that can be measured, that can be seen, that, that, that are external. And yet Jesus, if he says anything... It's about not responding to the external, but having the change that happens within. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. You dress up with your suit and tie when you come to meeting. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside also will be clean. 
And again, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea to wear a suit and tie to meeting. That may be a perfectly good manifestation of the relationship you have with God. But when we make those kinds of things the important kinds of things, then we're worried about the outside of the cup, and we're not worried about the transformation of the inside, the cleansing of the inside, the change that happens on the inside. Going back to Paul in Galatians 3, he makes a case very strongly. I realize the time is just zipping away from me here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. If you think that it's through observing rules that you will get into the kingdom, then you are wrong because you are under a curse. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. I mean, these are powerful verses. Have every regulation written down. Do every one of them. And Paul here in Romans 3, verse 20 says... That is not sufficient to have you declared righteous in God's eyes. Just keeping all those rules will not do it. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rules cannot save. They cannot rescue us. So what is the purpose of them? Why are there any rules at all? Why does God ever give rules? And, and he has given rules. I think the second part of this verse is, is very insightful. It, it say, Paul says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It shows us something about sin. Now, we often think of breaking the rules is the same as sin. That is, sin is breaking God's commandments. I don't believe that that's the case. I do think, however, that what the rules do is they show us something about the nature of sin. They, they help shine a spotlight on sin. Uh, in fact, Paul says in, in Romans 7, I'll, I'll just read it to you in verse 7, that um, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. But then he says, as soon as there was a law, the sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. What happens is when we get a law, when we get a rule that God gives us, that allows us to see something about what our heart is actually like, something about what's going on uh, inside of us. The act, uh, I mean, uh, so, um, so as I say, we often make this, uh, the, the mistake that sin is breaking God's commandments. 
And I think rather that breaking commandments shows us about sin that is inside of us. So what is sin? If sin isn't just breaking the rules, breaking the commandments, what is it? One of the teens came up with a great definition, which I'm going to adopt. Sin is hurting ourselves or hurting others. I think that's exquisite. I had sin as destructiveness. But I love, I love that. Sin is about hurting other people or about hurting ourselves. Sin is actually estrangement from God, and it's estrangement from one another. And we will see through the course of these talks more about that connection. Sin is anti-love. Sin is anti-oneness. It is selfishness. And what we see here in Romans is until we have law, we're ignorant of sin. Law is a spotlight which shows us sin. And I think this gives us insight into Genesis, what was going on there. seems to me that what, what we're being told in Genesis is that Adam and Eve were spiritually naked and yet were unashamed. Because they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't get that they were spiritually naked. And it seems to me that that taking of the fruit, that act of transgression, was not the thing that estranged them from God, but it was a symptom that they were already estranged from God. Because if they were not estranged from God, they wouldn't have taken it. But it's a manifestation that there was already something off. A man doesn't go out and commit adultery and so become estranged from his wife. A man goes out and commits adultery as a manifestation that he is already estranged from his wife. Do you see the point that I'm trying to make? Law shows us symptoms of sin. It shows us manifestations. It is not the sin itself. And when we equate sin with breaking law, we forget that sin is about what's going on inside of us. It's about this anti-love. It's about this separation between us and God. So rules can show us failure. They don't define success. And the problem is that laws are things that can be measured externally. And so we love them. It's sort of like, like weight, losing weight. I'm losing weight. I measure myself every day and I'm losing weight and yay, I'm making progress in getting more and more healthy. But somehow, I seem to be losing muscle, not fat. You know the problem? And yet you're still tied into this idea that you want to lose weight. Even though... The evidence is that weight is a rotten measure of health. I mean, it's a component of the measure. But it's not the measure itself. Getting less and less healthy because there's a bad balance now between muscle and fat or, or between water and, and other things going on in the body. 
The other reason we like laws is because through laws, we get to control other people. We get to define standards of righteousness for other people. And I think, actually, this is the essence of law. If you think about when somebody is saying, but we have to have rules... It's not about we have to have rules because otherwise I might do something that is not helpful. It's about we have to have rules so that I can know when other people are crossing the line. By having measurements, you can control other people. And this is the essence of law. And Paul says something a little bit like this in Galatians 3. And this is, I think, a classically misunderstood verse uh, in our community. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, as the NIV, so that uh, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. The King James, I think, has the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Uh, The Greek has a word from which we get um, pedagogue. Um, And because in English, pedagogue means teacher, we think of the the law was a teacher to bring us to Christ. But actually, if you look in the um, old literature as to how that word was used... What was the pedagogue? The pedagogue was not actually the teacher in the school. The pedagogue was the slave who would take a young man by the hand and make sure he got to school. I like the translation truant officer. The law was the truant officer to bring us to Christ. I think that really captures the purpose of law. It stops us straying too far. It acts as that boundary that says, oh, no, we're we're straying. And now that faith has come, verse 25, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Look at chapter 4 and verse 19. Again, the context of Galatians is here. This is the struggle of the first century ecclesias where you have the legal pressure, follow this set of rules coming from the um, uh, ex-Pharisee Judaizing influence. And you have Paul and others saying, no, the transformation is to be inside of you. It's not this yoke of slavery of here are the rules and regulations that you're supposed to follow. My dear children, he says, verse 19 of chapter 4, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It is really clear that Jesus did not measure his day-by-day relationship with his father by a set of rules. And Paul is asking for that same thing to happen in us. He wants echoes of Christ to be created inside each one of us so that we are Christ-like. Jesus says, follow me. We say, no, Lord, give us some rules to follow instead. 
I want to have a sense that I have earned the right to be in the kingdom, that I am worthy. That's not Christ being formed within us. Look at Romans 8. Just dipping into little bits here. Verse 5. And we'll spend quite a bit of time in Romans 8 one way or another through these classes. Those who live according to the sinful nature, the flesh, have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. If, if in your spirit you are connected with God, if you are aware of that seed of God that is growing within you, that, that formation of Christ within you, if that's your touchstone as to what gets manifest in your life, then your minds are set on what the Spirit desires, as opposed to the mindset on what the flesh desires. He says it, verse 9, you are not controlled by the flesh, by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Don't, don't write these off as first century words. This is powerful stuff. An echo of Christ is growing as a seed within you. If you let it, if you permit it to. If you let that be the thing which guides, then you can say, I am Christ's. But if instead you are the vicious dog with a chain around your neck, you can't say that you're Christ's. That's not guiding, that's not changing who you are. And this isn't just New Testament. It, it's, it's there in the Old Testament as well. Um, we could look at um, Psalm 51. We often have in the past about the, um, the if, if you wanted sacrifices and so on, I would bring them, but what you want is a broken spirit. Or Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant. I'll take my law and write it in their hearts and their minds. It will, be, it will just be welling up from inside. It won't be this externally imposed thing. But I'd like us to go to Isaiah 28. I, I like this one, Isaiah 28. This is, this is legalism. Verse 9. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? Are you so young in Christ that it has to be like this? For it is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Are you so young in Christ that you need the external restraint like this? Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they wouldn't listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become 
do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. And actually the Hebrew here is interesting. The Hebrew is sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's what the law becomes. If it doesn't actually make a change, it's just the blah, blah, blah going on. There's not real change. It's all just paperwork. Yeah, but you say you have to draw a line somewhere. No. Just because I have black over here and white over here and every shade of gray in between, where would you draw a line to say this is black and this is not black? The idea of a line is a philosophical idea. It comes from Cartesian thinking. It's not a biblical idea. And just because there is no one place that you can draw a line doesn't mean we have any difficulty in distinguishing black from white, but we recognize that there is a whole spectrum in between. And where I find myself on that spectrum and where you find yourself on that spectrum is, at the end of the day, an issue between you and God. In, um, uh, I'd like us to uh, take our final reading from Romans 14, But while you're um, turning that up, you might notice that in James, James says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What kind of rule is that? That's about if you see an opportunity for healing, if you see an opportunity for healing, and you choose not to take it, that is a manifestation of sin. Within you. You haven't broken any rule. There's nothing that you've done wrong. It has shown you something about what's inside. Um, chapter 14 of Romans, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One fa- man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man's faith allows him to only eat, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The idea here is allow one another. Allow one another, to be at a different place in the way they are in their relationship and their understanding of God and their connection with God than you. It's not the dog fence or the chain. It's the gentle spirit in the dog. There is no fence because there's no need for one when we're transformed within.